Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin a popular series of Dr. Newfeld's called Persevering in Hope. So turn to your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. In order to persevere through any trial or hardship, well, you have to believe that things are going to get better. I once had a conversation with someone who was taking leadership in doing a major renovation project, you know, on his local church. He said it was really amazing. He said you can have women walking on high heels over planks of wood stretched over mud, and they don't even complain, provided there are pictures of what the new building is going to look like when it's all done. That's true about anything. Tell a cancer patient going through chemo that he or she is going to make it, and they can rally the strength to walk through the trial. Tell the person who's working long hours that when this project is done, there's going to be a financial reward, and there's going to be some much-needed R&R at the end. Well, We can walk through anything if we know that there's a reason and a reward for our sacrifice. You know, the doctrine of the second coming of Christ is like that. Yeah, it's true. Christ, who has defeated death, is coming back again. In that day, evil will be defeated, and God's children will receive an eternal reward. The important truth of the second coming is not given so that we could rise to, you know, endless speculation and debate among Christians. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And then having shared that exciting truth, listen to Paul's very next words given in verse 18. Therefore, he says, encourage one another with these words. He didn't say, therefore, speculate about these words or try to put them together in a timeline in which you can estimate the actual month and the year of our Lord's return. No, he said, encourage one another with these words. In other words, when it gets really tough and the pressure is on you, and more that you think you can bear, when the pressures make you weary and you think you can't go on, in those very moments, make sure you're talking about the Lord's return, and then look at one another. Encourage one another with these words. Get excited. Build an anticipation. Make sure that the truths of our Lord's return are so well understood that you think you can taste it. These words are very important to the Thessalonian Christians, and they do form, you know, the context of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians from the Greek city of Corinth, not very long after he had been in Thessalonica. Let me give a brief rundown on what happened in Thessalonica. Paul, Silas, and Timothy arrived in Thessalonica as a part of Paul's second missionary journey. It was probably either the year 50 or 51. Paul had not planned to go over to Greece and into Europe, but a vision from God changed his plans. And there was a large synagogue in the Greek city of Thessalonica, and Paul preached there over a period of three successive Sabbaths. And the results were good. A number of Jews as well as God-fearing Greeks believed, but the leaders of the synagogue were jealous at Paul's results, and trouble quickly began. 
They formed an alliance with a number of wicked men in the city. They formed a mob against Paul, shouting that these men have turned the world upside down with this teaching about Jesus, and in consequence, Paul was thrown out of the city. But in between the first preaching in the synagogue and his removal from the city, Paul had spent a number of weeks in a very fruitful ministry, winning a number of Gentiles to faith in Christ and establishing the beginnings of a church. But just when things were starting to get exciting and there was a great deal of hope about the future of the gospel in that city, well, Paul suddenly ejected from the city. His ministry came to a sudden and resounding end. And out of concern for these brand new Christians, Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to make sure that they were taught the foundations of the faith, as well as to care for them and to ensure that the functioning church was underway. And in the meantime, Paul continued to travel south, going through Greece, eventually ending up in the city of Corinth, where Timothy finally caught up with Paul and brought Paul up to speed in terms of what was going on in Thessalonica. The church was doing well, in spite of persecution that had now taken root. Christians were often seen as troublemakers there, and these new believers immediately faced the stiff wind of opposition and hatred. And so Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, that's his first letter to the church, to accomplish a number of things. First, he wanted the slander against him that was still there in that city, not to cause a breach between those new Christians and himself. Second, he wanted them to progress in their new faith, making sure that they were living lives that were pleasing to God. And third, he wanted them in the midst of their persecutions to put their hope firmly in the second coming of Jesus. That would be the very thing needed to make it through the trials. In essence, what Paul wanted of the Thessalonian Christians, well, it's also what he wants of us. We're to continue to root ourselves in the apostolic message. Don't think you can be a Christian and not take your direction from the Bible. You know, there are only biblical Christians or non-Christians. And second, make progress in your faith. Find out what pleases the Lord and be all about that. And thirdly, especially when the going gets tough, return over and over again to this theme of our Lord's return. It's a basic formula for living out the Christian life. Now, shortly after Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, indeed, you know, not much time had passed. Paul's still in Corinth, but he now writes his second letter to them. And you have to wonder, I mean, why write them again so quickly? And, And when we think about it, we might think there are only two possibilities. Either Paul had forgotten something that he had not said in the first letter, or something went wrong after he wrote the first letter. And it turns out it was the latter. Something had gone wrong. Yeah, Paul had encouraged them that in the darkest days, when persecution and stiff opposition seemed wearying to the soul, when they must have thought they could scarcely go on, that they were to think on the second coming of our Lord. But how long would it take? Would his coming be a long time away? Now, Paul, of course, doesn't answer that question, but he does tell them to always anticipate. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 3. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, there is a word that theologians and Bible teachers sometimes use to describe this very teaching. 
The word is imminence. It means at any moment. Before you know it, the day might suddenly be upon you. So Paul says, live in the light of that expectation. Now then, that's exactly what the believers in Thessalonica started to do. But then came an unexpected result. It would seem that a rumor started circulating, and and we don't know a lot about the rumor, neither its content or, or what was fueling it. But the rumor began, and a certain portion of the church actually believed it. They believed that the day of the Lord had already come, and in some fashion, they had missed it. Now, in case you want to, you know, condemn the Thessalonian believers for being vulnerable to such an unbiblical teaching, please remember that at this time, the New Testament had not yet been written. You know, as far as I'm aware, at the time of the writing of 2 Thessalonians, Galatians had been written, and so had 1 Thessalonians. That was it. That was the entire New Testament at that point in time. All the churches had was the First Testament, and then the apostles and key authorized teachers explaining the First Testament in the light of Jesus. There was no New Testament then. And so don't be so quick to blame the Thessalonians. See, what I think is notable is the amount of confusion that exists in our day. You know, first, there are all manner of Christians who know almost nothing about the second coming of Jesus. That's terrible. And second, there are all manner of Christians who really do become quite confused when someone comes along and gives them a date for the second coming and then tells them because of world events, this is now on the prophetic calendar. You see, many people have fallen prey to that kind of thinking. The reason why 2 Thessalonians is written is twofold. It's to give suffering Christians a reason to carry on or a reason to remain steadfast and unmoved. There is reason for hope, but this book is also written so that you won't be confused or misled or discouraged by false claims about the second coming of Jesus. There are so many of those today, and it turns out those false claims go all the way back to the founding of the church. Second Thessalonians will help us not to make the kind of mistakes that were made by some in that church. Companions can be defined as people who band together for a common cause. Their combined resources accomplish together what they couldn't on their own. Well, Back to the Bible Canada is committed to the clear, reliable teaching of God's Word, but we understand this great calling is not a solo effort. That's why this month, Back to the Bible Canada is introducing its new monthly partnership program called Companions for the Gospel. Companions for the Gospel consists of individuals across Canada who choose to pray and support ongoing Bible teaching in the form of a consistent monthly gift. The result? Lives transformed. To find out more about joining Companions of the Gospel monthly partnership, its impact, and the exclusive benefits it offers, or to offer a gift today, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Let's begin to read the book. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 1 to 2. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, this short introduction to the letter is almost exactly the same as the one that we find in 1 Thessalonians. And since I dealt with that back when I taught on 1 Thessalonians, I'm going to add very little to it here. See, the only difference is that in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, in God the Father, and here he says, in God our Father. I don't think there's a significant difference here. And also in 1 Thessalonians, Paul simply says, grace to you and peace, whereas here he writes, and the grace and peace that comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say, both the Father and the Son are the source of the believer's salvation. Grace is what we have received in the forgiveness of sins and in our regeneration, and peace with God is the result of grace. Well, let's move on to verses 3 and 4. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Again, we should notice similarities between what Paul said in his first letter and what he says here. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul began by saying, we give thanks to God always for all of you. And here he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. See, in the first letter, he says that he does give thanks, but now he adds that the giving of thanks is actually an obligation. It's a requirement. It's his duty. Now, the Greek word that is translated as ought is the very same word that Paul would later use when he speaks to husbands of their obligations to their wife. Ephesians 5.28 says, in the same way, husbands should or ought love their wives as their own body. Paul will use that same root word again in Romans 13 verse 8, where he says, owe no one anything except to love each other. Now, the word that's translated as owe comes from a word meaning to be obligated. Don't be obligated to someone except in this obligation that you must love one another. And that's fascinating because, says Paul, not only do I give thanks for you Thessalonian believers, but I have a divine obligation. God expects it of me that I should be thankful for you. It's an important point, I think. When Paul was thankful for the progress the Thessalonian Christians had made in their faith, he gave thanks to God. And notice that Paul began by blessing the Thessalonians. They were recipients of the Father and the Son's grace and peace. So not only has Paul noticed what God has accomplished in these believers, but he indicates what God now expects of him that he not only should notice what God has been doing, but rather in his prayers, it is demanded of him that he give thanks for what God has accomplished. But why would God demand that of Paul? And if we think about it, why would God demand that we do the same as we encounter fellow Christians? Let me suggest two reasons. The first is that it keeps Paul from having a critical spirit. And by the time we get to chapter 2, we're going to see what the problem was. Some of the believers had been shaken, deceived about the second coming of our Lord. You know, Paul might have started this letter in the same way that we sometimes begin with our discussion of fellow believers. How easy we are to criticize what we see wrong in the other, or what they're doing wrong, 
or the lack of fervor that we might see in them, or, or even a sin that they haven't conquered yet. I mean, spend enough time in reflecting on those matters, and soon you're going to forget the work of grace in peace that God has also done in them. No one on this side of our Lord's return has got it all figured out. You know, some of us are more advanced in one area of life than some are in others. But Paul's sense of obligation to give thanks for the Thessalonians as his first order of business, that's a lesson for all of us to learn. It's not just that we're encouraged to do it. It's an obligation. So let me ask you, how often in your prayer life do you give thanks for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Is it a part of your regular prayer habit? Or did you not know that your heavenly Father demands that you do it? You're obligated to give thanks for one another. I mean, once we do that, it changes our attitude towards one another. Well, the second reason that Paul gives thanks is that it forces him to acknowledge that the Father has been at work. See, I noticed that Paul's not thanking the the Thessalonians for their progress. He's actually thanking God. God is at work, says Paul. I'm required to see that. God wants me to notice his grace and peace. Now then, when Paul says that he's obligated to give thanks, notice that he also says that to do so is right. And he's not flattering the Thessalonians. He's not showering insincere flattery on them. And what he's doing is taking note of something that has indeed happened. And here Paul points out two reasons for his thanks. First, he notices that their faith is growing abundantly. And when he uses the word abundant, he means there's plenty of it. You know, perhaps Paul even thinks that the growth in faith that he sees It's a growth in confident trust in the Father and in the Son. He sees that in the Thessalonians, and it's more than he had anticipated. You know, in the next verse, in verse 4, Paul mentions how their faith is steadfast and unmovable in the midst of their trials, and this from believers who hadn't been in Christ for that long. Just for a short while, Paul's astonished at how quickly their faith is growing. And the second reason he gives thanks is because of the love they felt for fellow believers that it was steadily increasing. You know, that is, he's noticing this upsurge of love. Now, let's compare this again to what Paul told the Thessalonians in the first letter. I mean, there as Paul expressed uh, his reason for giving thanks, he spoke of their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. And so, Paul's thankful in 1 Thessalonians for faith, hope, and love. It's that trifecta that Paul says those three things remain. But now in 2 Thessalonians, Paul only mentions faith and love. Hope is missing here. Why? You know, some Bible teachers have wondered whether hope is missing because of all the confusion that happened about the second coming of Jesus. I mean, is Paul saying that, you know, whereas once I was really thankful for your hope, but now it's gone missing. I don't think that's what Paul is saying at all. I mean, for one, Paul never says that. You know, he never says, whatever happened to the hope you once exhibited? Instead, the entire book of 2 Thessalonians really is a treatise on this matter of hope. And furthermore, in 1 Thessalonians, when Paul spoke about hope, he mentions the steadfastness of hope. And now, in 2 Thessalonians, he goes even further. And notice Paul is saying that he often mentions the Thessalonian church when he's visiting various other churches, and he says, I'm boasting about you because I tell others of your steadfastness and for your faith. 
So in Paul's mind, steadfastness and hope, those always go together. Steadfastness is the ability to bear up under difficult circumstances without veering off course, without panicking, without suddenly changing direction. It means to remain steady no matter how difficult matters become. Indeed, when Paul's boasting about the Thessalonians, he's speaking about the the two things they're facing. He mentions first persecution and then second afflictions. Now, in our minds, those two words sound very similar, but let's unpack that. The word Paul uses for persecution is a word that refers to religious persecution. You know, people doing harm to Christians for no other reason than they are Christians. If they abandoned their faith, the persecution would instantly end. Now, of course, we're not told how the persecution manifested itself. We do know that while Paul was there, there had been organized riots against him in the city. We also know that in other Greek cities, simply being a Christian might mean your business was being boycotted. You'd experience financial loss. And so whether it was the threat of physical harm or financial harm or simply being excluded in some fashion or being the target of constant hurtful threatening, no matter what it is, that's what they were going through. But they didn't abandon their faith. They were steadfast. They were unmovable. They never stopped trusting in Christ. And so as we read through this very short book, we're going to discover that the reason for this attitude was that sense of expectation that the Thessalonians had. Jesus is coming again. You know, it might be that some were shaken by a false report, but they never stopped hoping. Let's do the same. As we study 2 Thessalonians, let's learn more about our Lord's return so that we, like them, might be steadfast in hope. John, let me ask you, because I think this is a subject sometimes we like to avoid, but what about the importance of understanding eschatology and and why it's really not an option to put on the shelf? Yeah, I know that in our day, I'm sometimes amazed, Ben, that we have not, as part of basic Christian discipleship, taught people eschatology. Um, It is so important because, you know, we say faith, hope, and love remain. Well, hope is always hope in the second coming of Christ. So the more that we can learn about that, the more we build hope in believers and, you know, our eyes glisten with anticipation as we think about what is yet to come. So eschatology should be a part of basic Christian training. Every believer should have it. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series of Persevering in Hope right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. If you're considering a vacation in 2024, we'd love to invite you to join Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and the leadership team behind them on a Caribbean cruise event from April 5th to the 14th, 2024. This vacation opportunity will provide beautiful scenery, time being refreshed and challenged by the Bible teaching of Dr. John, laughter, fellowship, and spiritual encouragement with Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and times of worship and song with feature musical guest Amanda Stott. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. For more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note, 
that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by those who participate.